need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line from pre-08 Nobu, it's Andy Greenwald. That's a nice throwback. I like that. Today on the show, a bit of news at the top covering the cancellation of The Outsider at HBO Max, the one-year anniversary of Disney Plus and some other Disney news. And then Andy and I will... Happy birthday, baby. Yeah, happy birthday, Disney Plus. You guys did it. And then Andy and I will break down the new HBO drama industry. It's all coming up on today's episode of The Watch. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages... Then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. What's up? We're back. Andy, it's so great to see you. It's Thursday. Things are going awesome over here. We're just making Ron Klain memes in our free time. We're part, we're, we're no longer part of the resistance, right? We've been leading no, with politics a lot. Should we start leading with like baseball hot, hot stove league or something? Yeah, I, I was trying to, Chris is joking, but I'm very serious. Now that we've done our duty, we can hang up our spurs. The resistance is over. We won. Everything's great now. <laughs> we need to pivot, right? And some people, like non-galaxy brain level thinkers, were like, you guys should now start watching television shows on a weekly basis and talking about them. And I was like, yawn. Who said that? That's, that is 08 Nobu news. Know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I want to, like the heroes of the new HBO drama industry, which we'll speak about later, I want to take all of the capital we've accrued over the last few weeks and months and even years and invest it completely in the possibility of a war in the South China Sea sometime in the next five to 15 years. So what's next for us? And Chris helpfully suggested we should become meme lords. Yeah. And Chris was getting the ball rolling. I feel like our listeners will appreciate this by sending me very staid photos of soon-to-be chief of staff. uh, Chief of staff elect. Yeah. Paired with particularly gully verses from Pusha T of the clips. And I was like, no notes, publish, publish. I feel like that is what Daniel Ek and Spotify wanted when they bought the Watch podcast and then agreed to take the ringer on along with it. It's Max B's Um, cochlean wave. That's what we're doing right now. That's it. You did it. Yeah. Look, you workshopped it live on air. Andy, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Palouse because... um, it's been a it's a roller coaster year for us for Bob Chapek, for the Iger counter, yeah. Uh, but we're here. We got we we got through the first year of Disney Plus, and you know we're in the midst of the second season of The Mandalorian. Soul comes out uh, Christmas Day. Is that right? It picks our movie that was removed from theaters and will be going up 
straight to the police, correct? And then uh, it was announced today that January 15th, we will see mm. the first uh, MCU Disney Plus show, which is WandaVision, dropping so in mid-January. So Disney has carved itself out a spot where for the next couple of months, they will have something on the air that people want to check out. Now, I'm personally probably not going to see Soul, but like, you know, I will definitely see WandaVision. I'll definitely watch the rest of The Mandalorian as we talk about it every week. But the thing that I was most struck by, and we can talk a little bit about some of the numbers that came along with some of this news because they did their their earnings. And mm. uh, they're staggering, honestly, man. I mean, considering the fact that they had a lot of layoffs at ESPN, that Disney has, has had to make cuts, they have added nearly 74 million subscribers to Disney+. And I think the thing that stuns me is everything we know about streaming services, or at least we thought we knew, was that you needed to give people this constant churn of new stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that they, they, they had to like check in on Friday that they had uh, an ever-growing queue of stuff to check out. And Disney came through, dropped the, the family entertainment bag that we knew they would when, when they rolled this service out. They've essentially given us uh, Mandalorian Season 1, Hamilton, Mulan, and Mandalorian season two. And I, I would it. say one twenty five percent of that. I would say no, thank you, and hand back. Right. But yes, that's it. Then that was not the plan. The obviously they had hoped to have the Marvel original series going by now. I believe at least two of them were initially intended to premiere this fall. It's amazing. I do think it's kind of an outlier, as we say whenever we talk about Disney. It is a, and has managed to stay, and credit to all the Bobs, frankly, whichever Bobs are relevant to this conversation, uh, Iger, Chapek, Balaban, whatever. Former Um, baseball manager Bob Melvin, probably involved there somewhere. Yeah. Bob Gibson, RIP, um, that they have managed to maintain their place as a essential American brand, meaning you engage with it. You know, Mm -hmm. you expect to, if you have, especially, you know, and I'll, uh, shouts from, shouts from the plush suite that I've booked uh, for the holidays with my family on the beachside here of Daddington Island. It's just something that you kind of have to engage with. And I, what I wonder, though, about the streaming service, and, and you know, I'm sure that they'll spin the numbers any which way, and we'll never actually know. We won't have any like counterfactuals to, to prove or disprove it. Did subscriptions to the service go up due to a need for entertainment during the pandemic, when, as if it was over, sorry, but during the early stages and through the summer of the pandemic as people wanted some entertainment or just needed to have a moment away from their children. We won't ever <laughs> totally know that. Or <laughs> is there some... away from their children. That's what I, by the way, that's what I refer to this podcast as. It's daddy's, daddy's private time. But I also don't really know, because I am not an analyst at Pierpoint, whatever the name of the fictional bank is in uh, industry, how sustainable this is. Because clearly, you're not going to, no one's betting against Disney making it through this. They're one of the major companies in the world. The future looks better than the present because they have pivoted into this streaming model uh, at the appropriate time. And mm-hmm. now they have this bench, right? This benchmark of like where. They have these subscribers, they have direct access to them, and now they can, it can only get better once, in theory, the world gets better and they can put more things into production or whatever. But I don't really understand the collision between, okay, we, we, we're, we're bullish on the long-term prospects, but we're very bearish on the short-term prospects of a company that is totally uh, devastated 
by in person the lack of in person entertainment. The right? swing and, and, from their their parks earnings is staggering. It's something like plus one point four billion to minus one point one billion. I, I mean, it, it. This is there. There should be no crying for Bob Chapek, but it is interesting pretending that everything is value neutral, which it's and not. I, but if I it say were, that those numbers, knowing full well that while many people were giving money to Senate candidates of their choice, I was donating yeah. money directly to the Log Flume Fund at Magic Kingdom just to make sure everything just, just we were cycling the water in and out. We were keeping the rides moving just to keep, the, think, to keep everybody in practice. What I, the way I chose to maximize my <laughs> dollar value was to give only to the performers who play Disney characters who don't have the benefit of masks. Or like giant furry costumes. Like the dude who plays Captain Hook, he is exposed. You know what I'm saying? He is he is truly, truly exposed in the way the guy who plays Jiminy Cricket isn't. $1,000 to act blue, but only to the animatronic Abe Lincoln in the Hall of Presidents? Yeah, $1,000 to the JPEG support fund, but only if you bring back the, is that racist? Caricatures of people from around the world that used to walk around scaring children at Epcot Center. Okay, but what I wanted to say was, JPEG is now in this position that isn't, great, although I guess it's the right one for his shareholders, where he is out there castigating California Governor Gavin Newsom, basically being like, how dare you deny people the right to enjoy themselves at our theme parks during a massive viral pandemic that is spiraling out of control? That's, it's a, it's a different category, but in a way, this is the argument that is completely paralyzing the country and the economy, you know, and it's more, it's a, I think it's more value to pay attention, it's more valuable to pay attention to it in the context of small businesses, right? Where Mm-hmm. We want the restaurants that we love to exist, um, even though everybody knows that these places should be just getting money not to open until it's safe to do so again. But none of that's going to happen. When I mean, I'm not saying bail out Disney, but I'm saying that it puts them in a very strange PR position trying to save their business while giving us good entertainment content, but actively arguing a point of view that could get people sick and killed. I just, the thing that it keeps, I keep going back to is how I feel like Disney, for the most part, is exactly what it said it was on the first day it started, as -hmm. it is a year in. Not through no fault of their own, because they probably would have had at least uh, WandaVision and Captain and Winter Soldier up if, uh, sorry, um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier up if they had gone through with the production on the schedule that they had laid out. But if they could put up 70 some million subscribers with what they have, yeah. It's sort of daunting to imagine what happens if they get an Obi-Wan show and three Marvel shows up next year. I think that's a great point. And I think it it speaks to uh, how Because quickly... Ma- Mandalorian, for as good as it is, is hardly the red meat of the Star Wars universe that they could be surfing up. It's one show also. I mean, if you had told them that they were going to spend however many millions, if not billion dollars they spent on the launch of this thing, and a year in have one original show, essentially... I don't know how they'd feel about that. Right. But it is pointing to an interesting... Let me just say it this way. I wonder how instructive it is internally at Disney because one of the great successes of Bob Iger's tenure and a lot of credit for this goes to Alan Horn, who's headed their movie department for a long time as well, which is they made Disney... um, Disney has always been synonymous with just consistent backlog of children's entertainment. But what what they did was they made Disney synonymous with blockbusters and events. Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, they own what the box office has become, right? And what this year has proven is that plan A was okay. Plan A is not bad. They essentially completely had to lose plan B that has carried them and redefined them. 
But plan A seems to be doing okay, at least for this year, fiscally, right? If not yeah. uh, long-term. Um, I also wonder if it has, intri- this is the other question I have going forward. We haven't heard like, unlike with Apple, which has spent the pandemic just buying a lot of projects and flirting with buying bigger ones, like, you know, whether it's a star-studded TV show like Shrink Next Door with Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd, or flirting or kicking the tires on a Bond movie. No, I saw um, that they have um, like a a Chris Miller movie uh, called After Party that just basically has like every funny person in it. It, it, it They're just buying stuff up left and right. Disney has not announced like a new Disney for for the plus anyway, like a new franchise show or a new investment. They are not using this year to do what some people wondered if they would, which is, are they going to um, do anything to shake the assumption that this is at most a PG-13 platform, right? Or just at most a place to continue to strip mine successful franchises for parts. The answer seems to be no, and that seems to be working. So I'm also interested to see how the other channels on Disney Plus grow and and how Disney in general interacts with Hulu going forward. I think that we've seen mm-hmm. obviously the um you know High Fidelity, which was supposed to be a Disney Plus show that wound up going to uh Hulu and sadly was is not coming back. That was an example of hey, let's take something that feels like it belongs somewhere else and move it over here. But Something like The Right Stuff, which we talked about a little bit, that's on Nat Geo on, on the service. I'm curious to see whether or not like those other uh, verticals, for lack of a better term, um, wind up uh, like putting out more stuff once, once production is, is flowing a little bit more I, freely. I don't see it. And, and the reason why, uh, you know, uh, let me do this Thomas Friedman column stuff. No, I like which this. Is a, a very, 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 very small sample size, i.e. my own home. Um, They're not watching The Right Stuff? Well... Not so much that they're not watching it because they're they're pretty big Philip Kaufman fans. They're, they're they just also like absolutely scandalized by the treatment of John Glenn. Well, they know they watched Unbearable Lightness of Being and they thought yeah. that was an excellent movie. And so then they went back to the right stuff and they're like, this guy's a pretty top tier filmmaker. Why isn't he mentioned in the same breath as others from his generation? Sure. But when they turned on the plus this morning to catch up or to finish watching uh, The Great Mouse Detective, mm-hmm. classic cartoon from 1983. Uh, it's about a mouse who's a, you get it. The as they were scrolling through the menu, the the big top bar was like the right stuff, new episode now. I was mm-hmm. like, this is discordant, and it would be okay if they clicked that. I'm not saying that their sensibilities would have been offended. Although my younger daughter thinks the speed of sound record was a big deal. She's she, she's a big. Yager oh, that's guy. cool. Yeah, it, that's just seeing how they interacted with the service, and you know, I think the the point of Disney in the way they marketed it successfully was. Open this app. Here's a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. How wonderful. You know, look at all of the stuff we have. Um, there's real value in all of that stuff essentially being pitched at the same level. You know, if one of those things was, a, you know, a new season of Ryan Murphy's Ratchet or whatever, like, mm-hmm. I, it, that's just not, not yeah, only you don't have to worry visually. about Netflix popping up and it being like the Griselda murders, right? Like, Tr- truly. And I think that, you know, my daughters are equally like Chuck Yeager was nimble at, you know, breaking the sound barrier. They're very good at seeing that, you know, oh, mom and dad were watching um, Call My Agent again last night. Let's get out of this as quickly as possible to the sure. kids menu. Disney Plus doesn't work if you have to toggle between content like that. And I think right. they were smart about that. And so it is what it is. And it seems to be working. Uh, another is what it is situation. Oh. It- can we stay on Daddington Island for one second? This is something you don't want to talk about, but I have to bring it up. Okay. 
Are you going to talk about Johnny Depp? Yeah, just is briefly. This, okay. Briefly. I couldn't tell I if feel, this was a bit. No, this isn't a bit. A couple years ago, we, Chris and I, were doing the Game of Thrones after show, or mm-hmm. one iteration of it. And before we went live, and I don't remember if this was, it was live, so it must have been when we were doing it on, on Twitter, not HBO. We were back in the, in the green room, which may or may not have been Jason Gallagher's office at that moment. And there was a TV on where we were, I guess we were going to watch the show before we went out and did the whatever. And yeah, so before yeah. the new episode was on, we were watching the last 15 minutes of a Harry Potter film. Now at that time, and up until like last month, I was completely Harry Potter ignorant. And now I'm reading the books with my kids and I have thoughts, but we'll save those. If you have thoughts, if you say it that way, on. yeah, if you say it that way, I wonder whether or not that doesn't bode well for Harry Potter. No, no, it, 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 Harry Potter himself, no, it's great. This is great fun. I'm glad I waited because I get to enjoy these with my kids. It's fine. But my point is there was some movie, it's like this Fantastic Beast thing. I guess it's like a prequel film series. And you and I were watching this along with Jason and Mallory, who of course knew everything about it. And we were happy to see that our number one draft pick, Colin Farrell, was in the film. Yes. Anything with Colin Farrell in it is immediately more interesting. And I am very happy whenever he's getting paid a good sum, you know? Yeah, it's really at important the, that he, he protects his bank account. <laughs> so at the end of the film, he's a, revealed to be a villain. Mm-hmm. And they like do a Scooby-Doo and they like pull his mask off or magic it off or whatever. I, again, I, I don't have all the details about how it works. And it, the big reveal is that he's actually Johnny Depp. Yeah. Does he get older? Like, Is that what happens? The, he looks like, yeah, he, he looks like he, he, he went to St. Lucia for the Keith Richards treatment, which is, which is, which is you get foliated. You, you are not exfoliated. You were just foliated. And I, this was really bizarre, right? Because I'm like, you have a really good, interesting actor. And then you unmask him as being whatever Johnny Depp was turning into even before we found out that in real life he seems to be a total monster. And this seemed like a weird downgrade, and we gave Jason and Mallory a lot of guff for it, as if they personally had made the film. Yeah, okay? like as if like they somehow had, had sullied True Detective season three by doing this. Yeah, season two. So, fast forward to now. I uh-huh. guess they're gonna they're finally ready to fire up the third movie in the Crimes of Grindelwald uh, franchise, mm-hmm. which, by the way. Um, I will only ever hear as my own name, thanks to Sam Esmail, who was referring to Briar Patch season two as the crimes of Greenwald. <laughs> and of course they can't have Johnny Depp in this movie. I, I can't, what were they thinking? That This is really where I'm at. What are you thinking where you think that this is going to be a real game changer to put Johnny Depp in your franchise and then everything happens and comes out and now they're replacing him with Mads Mikkelsen. When you had Colin Farrell right there. That's my point. Obviously, like, this you, is, I, you know as well as anybody that Colin Farrell probably has other things going on. I mean, that guy's going to play the Riddler, isn't he? No, he's the or Penguin. No, he's the Penguin. Right, he's the Penguin. He's Oswald Copperpot or whatever. Are, are you saying that Colin Farrell, the most underrated character actor of our time, can't bear up under the weight of two franchises, Here's Batman my point. and it, Grindelwald? Is like, I don't understand why there, anybody is sweating this. It's pretty easy to, like, digitally go back and reshoot that one scene. Like, Zack Snyder has been reshooting Batman versus Superman or Justice League for, like, two years now. Like, go back and just put Colin Farrell in the one scene. Do you see he keeps unveiling new characters? 
Yes. This is, it is weird. Like when Vulture's like, see your first glimpse of Martian Mindhunter in a movie that came out six years ago. Dude, so um, did you see that Green, I think Bob Greenblatt, who used to be very high up at HBO Max and has since moved on, but was it him who was just like, I, j- I made a terrible mistake with the Snyder Did he say cut. that? No, he was, I, I think he was basically like, I thought it was going to be like, we're going to just trim some stuff up. We're going to punch some uh-huh. things in. And it's like this, we're like 30 million in the hole now. And like, we have to like, we have to swim to the other side of the channel now. It, it, it did not sound like it was going well. Speaking Bob of HBO Greenblatt, Max. Come, come on the watch. Look, you, I, I just wish everyone could see how quickly you are doing one of those Fast and the Furious pull the handbrake to put the car into the spin turns to get I'm out Tokyo of drifting def- to defending I- Mads Mikkelsen. If they just want, do you want Mads Mikkelsen or do you want Johnny Depp when you have Colin Farrell? That's my point. I think it's a, it's a good argument to be made. I'm happy for Mads Mikkelsen. I, That's true. There must be a reason why Colin Farrell could not do this. You know, let's I not mean, look under the hood too closely. Okay. The all car right. runs. This was the real crime of Grindelwald. That's that's all I wanted to say. I wanted to briefly talk about the cancellation of Outsider at HBO yeah. Max because it came as a huge surprise to me. Look, um, not HBO Max, HBO. HBO. But aren't we is it, are so I guess that's my first question. Are we not all in the same gang? Are we not talking S- still doesn't make any sense. But no, it is an HBO original series. I think I mean maybe now it would be less uh challenging now that Casey Bloys is in charge of all of it, but we haven't seen any evidence yet of a show being an HBO show moving to HBO Max. I don't know what practical difference it would make maybe in okay, the accounting but th- department, that being but it said, is done at, at Warner Media. Okay, let's say. so yes, I, Outsider was on linear television. You could watch it on HBO on cable the same way that you can watch, uh, I think Industry is on linear, correct? Yes, it's an, H- it's an HBO BBC co-pro. Right, but Love Life was only on HBO Max. and That was an HBO Max original, and the yes. people at HBO would be like, don't forget that. And I'm not. I apologize to all my good friends at HBO at the home box <laughs> office. Um, Outsider has been canceled nonetheless. And this came as a huge shock because it was one of the rating successes of premium cable in the early part of the year. And obviously was something that captivated a lot of people. We talked about it quite a bit. I think that um, our interest waned in it as it went on. But in, at least initially, we were super into this show. And they had kind of built an effective runway to do a you know a Cynthia Erivo second season of this show, and I was really excited to see where Richard Price went with it after getting off of the Stephen King text essentially and coming up with a, you know sort of a more original mythology for the characters involved. I'm stunned by this. Um, I'm not really sure you know whether we'll ever really get an explanation from it. One of the things that's interesting is um, MRC, the company who produces the show, I suppose, right are open to, apparently, open to shopping it around to other services. As you pointed out to me, though, there's a big problem with this, though. Yes. Yeah, MRC, uh, independent studio, made the show for HBO. MRC, increasingly unique among studios, even smaller studios, in that it is unaffiliated and independent. So it does not directly feed to anyone, so it sells everywhere. Its biggest success is probably... um, Either you could say the Ozark probably at Netflix or, or the great at Hulu. Um, they're very serious about wanting to sell it elsewhere. From everything I understand, Richard Price has delivered at least one script. Um, Cynthia Erivo is under contract. I mean, this is, Stephen King was, I think, the one who 
accidentally leaked the news that there was going to be a season two because he was psyched about it. He thought yeah. this was a great adaptation and, and gave Richard Price's blessing to take the Holly character into new pastures and a different story. But the way television shows are monetized these days, I don't see the value, and I say this sadly because I would love to see the second season, I don't fully understand the value of, say, a Netflix buying the second season of a show uh, to which the first season, that they don't have the rights to the first season of. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean HBO has them in perpetuity either because HBO doesn't own the show. It is an mm -hmm. independent thing. But unless Netflix could come up with something that I don't understand, I'm not sure why HBO would, but if they could come up with something that would allow them to take the first uh, season, license the first season as well, then then you could see that happening. But it's a tricky situation, even for something as pedigreed as this. And as to why they're not going forward with it, I don't know, because it does seem like this, the undoing, you know, they, they were both key parts of what has been a quietly consistent and successful year for HBO. You know, mm -hmm. the, these were not, obviously these are expensive shows with major talents involved with them in front of the camera and behind them. But the fact that they just sort of low-key slipped into that Sunday night slot and I, delivered, that's yeah. what you're looking for. And we, that is we'll much harder about, to do than it sounds. We'll talk about industry in a bit. But while, you know, a lot of, we've talked a lot this year about, oh, when is the tap going to run dry? Does Netflix have shows to last throughout the rest of the year and into next year? You know, all these streaming services that launched probably on the promise of a lot of original content that they weren't able to deliver because of the pandemic. HBO is just, actually reliably put up two shows per little mini season and you know since the beginning of the year and you you know i understand where we're talking about netflix canceling stuff and feeling like kind of attracting people with the flashy headline of a show starting is more important for them maybe than season mm -hmm. four or five of something that's mm -hmm. i take that you know at face value but hbo has a great reputation for building up loyalty and fandom in shows over the course of several seasons. They hit that sweet spot. That's not quite the showtime. We'll put it on in perpetuity. They have like, this is a really good, the leftovers gets really good in season two. This is going to get really good in season three. So I, I'm, I'm really surprised that this is happening. The other thing that I think is worth noting here is part of the appeal of HBO, not just for people like us who have been fans of their shows for a long time, but also I think internally within the industry has been their slow and steady investment in their people and their types of shows. And as everyone runs to chase the new thing, HBO just kind of delivers. And part of the reason they deliver is because of these longstanding relationships, almost all of which predate Casey Bloys or even his predecessor uh, in the job. And I wonder if that's starting to change. Now, obviously, um, times change and they invest in new talent and as well they should. And but Richard Price has been at HBO for a while. In a lot of this ways. is what I was going to say. I, I think that, I think that, that David Simon, you know, from the wire and, and, and most recently the deuce and plot against America. I think that he just re-upped. I think he just tweeted something about he's now entering his 20th year in business with HBO. There will always be room for a David Simon show on HBO, which is great. We support it. I love that. And I love that about them. But I do wonder if it if it signals the beginning of a turning of a page. Obviously, the corporate structure and everything has moved on from the like we're in New York, we're not Hollywood, we're not TV, we're HBO, we're based in New York, and this is what we do. And everyone moves to us, not the other way around. They're making more shows now. 
they're making shows that might not fit their brand and saying they're HBO Max originals, but it's all mixed up in there. But are they kind of turning the page from the Richard Price, David Simon era? And there's, you know, I'm not, I, I, I realize I don't want to be the guy here being like, look, humans are great, but dinosaurs have been with us for a long time. I, sure. Time should change. Um, but I particularly thought The Outsider was worthy of, of continuation, not just because it was a Richard Price written show and we love him as a novelist and as a screenwriter, but what was cool about it was that it was Richard Price doing a modern genre show. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the right kind of sweet spot between the old HBO and the new. And there's no, it doesn't need a second season, but as you said, Cynthia Erivo leading a paranormal crime show. Yeah. Written by Richard Price. Yeah. Richard, I'd be, let's I would do be it. pretty into that. We're going to talk more about HBO because we're going to talk about the new drama industry. And we'll just take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about that. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac, or drop a crispy fry between the car seats, or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Andy, let's get five beeps on this, huh? How about that? I am I'm really excited to talk about this. I did not expect to like industry as much as I did, and I thought it was a fucking blast. Um, uncomplicatedly a fucking blast. I don't know if people have gotten a chance to check it out, so maybe they won't be listening to this segment. But if you have, we're gonna talk about the first episode pretty in depth, and there's some spoilers in there. I cannot think of a better description of this show than the one that Lena Dunham, who directed the first episode and executive produced the show, offered up, which is Melrose Place meets Wolf of Wall Street. There are elements of both of that in this. I also found it to be very much of a piece with some of the other shows on HBO this year, like I May Destroy You, like We Are Who We Are, 
a kind of deeply romantic yet deeply self-aware and um, young feeling series about about people kind of making their way in a very contemporary time and you know i i've i've oh, a couple of things i wanted to bounce off you but one of the things that i've been excited about but with tv this year is the amount of shows that i think speak to at least a contemporary moment rather than looking backwards and trying to define metaphorical or allegorical truths from what it was like in the 60s or what it was like in in the 50s like i have really loved shows that are are a little bit more contemporary and a little bit more of the moment. And I felt like, I felt like that way with industry. Um, I felt like way with the characters, the way that they were behaving in good and bad ways. What did you think? I'm completely on the same page as you. I was not expecting to like it half as much as I did. Uh, and I loved watching it and I can't wait to watch more. And for on a very base level, I think you're, your elevator pitch for it is right. And I think that that alone should get people watching it. I mean, I am a sucker. You are a sucker. We're all, a lot of people like entertainment are suckers for shows, uh, movies, but in this case, certainly shows about hot, interesting young people who are willing to, all caps, push it too far, Mm -hmm. right? And they're in a high stakes environment and they're bumping up against each other in all kinds of ways all day and all night. And that makes for very entertaining television. The next step, though, I think that really made me not just because there's a version of this where you could like it in kind of a trashy way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more interesting than that. And your point about like contemporary society, there was something about watching incredibly young people as they are in the show, because the show follows a group of, they're not interns, but they're basically like first years who enter this incredibly rigorous training program. Yeah, right. At a at a massive global banking firm and the idea being that they have to they have mentors and they have impossible hours and that at the end of the term uh, i think three months or something half of them are going to be gone and they're and the they're constantly being evaluated so it's it's a six episode show i think that that term takes place over the course of six months i'm not sure if that's it's entirely their sort of induction period or whatever but the yeah the the, the it's like a six month sort of weeding out process of who will and who won't stay at this place and what I thought was interesting about it as someone who has no interest in global finance, uh, no understanding of it at all. I don't know what the word tranche means. I don't, I know you like, you like shows with terminology. I know. I, I, I don't, mean, I'm a jargon guy. Like I, yeah. I, I, and I would say that the guys who wrote this show and created it. So their names are, um, their names are Mickey Down and Conrad Clay. They, they, they push this car into the absolute red. Like the RPMs are going so high on the terminology and the vocabulary. And that's also a really interesting test of great writing and great performing. Because if you don't understand 98% of what is being said in a literal way, but intuitively understand what's happening on a narrative and emotional way, like, Mm -hmm. isn't that kind of the best feeling? Where you know you know what I mean, like that. I yeah. mean, that is sort of what Sorkin does. Sorkin, I think, is a little bit more of a populist, and and he can he can go really deep into the terminology people use to cut a highlight package on a sports news show on a nightly basis. But mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, well, it's I'm, I care about Danny, the anchor, and I care about Natalie, the producer. Well, also Sorkin, I think, finds great poetry and nobility in detail. 
yeah. and and absorption and compulsion and obsession with detail. And I think what makes this show very modern and contemporary and younger than Sorkin is that there's no romance in it. In in it, it's just numbers and it's just money. And as I was, I was what I was going to say is because I, I don't know about any of this world. I don't care about it, particularly at this precarious moment in global history. It can feel incredibly gross. It can feel cynical. But what I think the show does very well and actually very subtly in the beginning is present this idea that if you are a young person in the world and your prospects, and this is pre-pandemic, your prospects are bleak, you are going to be worked to the bone regardless of what you do, whether you are bussing tables to support your career, your dream career as a painter or a musician, or you are working in global finance, you're going to be worked to the bone anyway. You are essentially you know, flotsam in the floating plastic sea of global capitalism. So why not choose to sacrifice yourself in the purest way possible, which is just in the pursuit of money? Yeah, You're going and- to be working anyway, so why not maximize your value? And that feels empty and cynical, but also in the eyes and representation that the show gives us, it suddenly seems not reasonable, but compelling and That sucks on a humanity level. It's good TV. It's good TV. And, and I would take it one step further, which is, and this is this might be boilerplate, this might be something that, and it is something that I've said before in writing and on this podcast, and we've discussed in various contexts and in regards to different shows, diverse casting fucking matters. And it matters not just to make the world a better place, but because instantly the show is more interesting because of it. Yeah, and specifically My Holly Harold, who plays uh, Harper. In she show. is... A revelation. I loved her as the lead of the show. I love watching her. I can't wait to see more from her. But you put her in the middle of this place, and it's not just how she looks as an actor. It's also the character that's built around her, which is that she's clearly hiding something in her background. She comes from Binghamton, or she went to SUNY Binghamton, and everyone else here went to Eton. Uh, that's a high school, right? But whatever. You get my point. Um, and suddenly there's something else going on here. Suddenly it's about something else. Some, some, many other factors are at play. And I think that goes all the way up and down the board because there's a, there's a black British character who is the poshest of the posh. Mm-hmm. Um, and he Gus, can, yeah. Gus, and he can pass in certain ways. There's a moment of inappropriate uh, touching and groping in the show that happens between two women. Um, these, are, these are choices that, the, that uh, the creators of the show, probably along with Lena Dunham, made that make the story better and to make the storytelling better. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very, very compelling because of it. Let's talk about Lena for a second. Um, yeah. You mentioned that the show is not romantic, right? I think you, you said that some of the pursuits that the people are doing are not romantic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's always hard to chop up who gets credit for what or whose idea was what or what are we seeing on screen goes, you know, I think Lena Dunham was initially reported to be the director for this entire series. And now it turns out it was only directing the first episode I don't know if it was directing, but she, but the early press releases, and probably because she was the most famous person involved, led with her. Mm-hmm. It does seem like maybe it was more like a more standard thing that even happened on Briarpatch, where a filmmaker comes in, executive produces, and directs the See, first episode. I thought episode, I saw that she was supposed leaves. to direct multiple episodes. I'm not, I guess that's not true. It, it, I may have. It seemed like I'm un, it's unclear. We can go back to the deadline stuff. So I'm unsure. I'm unclear if something changed, but regardless, I think what we both wanted to say was that she delivered. In any case, one. a lot of the material in this episode is pretty dry you know it's it's pretty technically dense with a lot of financial services lingo but the way it's shot which is really voyeuristic very verite very kind of 
in the Uber, in the dorm room, in the restaurant, in the nightclub. These all feel like very real places. They don't feel like sets. And then the cutting and the music that they employ is this deeply romantic, like drive soundtrack kind of emotional synth pop that I think adds this layer of feeling that might not actually be there if you just showed people the footage. And that's the beauty of like filmmaking is you can play with the palette of emotions that a viewer is going to feel or experience using all these different levers. You know this as much as anybody is like you can you can change how I feel about an interaction by putting a music drop over it or by adding a bit of sound effect or changing the way that the director of photography approaches mm -hmm. that scene. And I just thought that this was a great combination. Now, this has moments. This show definitely has moments where you're just like, when Ken Lung, who we all know and love from Lost and, and countless other appearances, uh, who plays uh, Harper's mentor, turns to her and I think he says, like, they're paying for your idea. Make them fucking pay. Like, you know that that's like the Tony Gilroy bat signal. You know, like, yeah. you know that the boys are going to be waving the banner for that one. And there's lots of moments like that in this show. But there's also lots of moments where you're just like, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if this person is succeeding or failing. But the way in which like they imbue the episode, whether it's Lena or Mickey and Conrad or all everybody together, with that kind of extra textual emotional feeling is really cool. Yeah, I agree. I, I want to shout out particularly Nathan McKay who did the music. It's it, it struck me as well as being indebted to Cliff Martinez, the great film composer who worked on Drive and. A pump up the volume we discovered when we did yeah. the rewatchables recently. It's these very gauzy, oddly warm washes of synths that just hit so well over these incredibly sterile sets or, or, or backdrops and elevate the show. And similarly, I, 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 I'm a big fan in general of when directors or filmmakers or artists who are often thought of as auteurs focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. um, so Lena Dunham basically directs her own stuff and directs it very well. And her abilities as a director, I think, were subsumed into the larger narrative about girls, increasingly about her. And it's really cool to see the talent and, and remember that she's a really good filmmaker and she's a very observant filmmaker, you know? And I think that there are camera choices that, feel, you know, like they, they, they come from her again, as Chris was saying, authorship, especially in TV shows, it's, it's murky and mixed, but the camera lingers on people's reactions to things often like a few beats extra. Mm -hmm. Um, you see when Harper makes that sale, like, and it's the mm -hmm. shot from across the sales floor or across the sort of open floor plan. It's just like a different eye. And it's like, it's not like a zoom in or anything sweeping. It's just like, here, this person just had a life-changing moment and we're watching it from across the room. And you see people seeing things and intuit from that. And I, and I, I kind of love that. It brought something that could be opaque, certainly with the jargon. It could be almost totally impenetrable and it brought it to life and vibrancy in a way that I really appreciated. I think it's, I think it's also just going to be kind of a fun show to watch even when it's... Depressing. It's not, yeah. it's not, it's not cringy, but it is... It is stressful to yeah, watch I mean, dudes like this, this party on K all night feels, and then go. This episode features a character death, a very tragic, sad character death, and yes. also a guy taking K, special K, and then having a one night stand and barfing on the street outside of the tube stop as he like drags his scrambled eggs of brains into the office. So for a seven a.m. all hands for a seven a.m. all hands, mm -hmm. I want to ask you. You know, did Wait, this? I, I, 
I have to digress for one second. Don't forget your question. I have to ask you this. We have all been there at different phases of our lives when people have said these fraudulent words. I mean, I, d- I definitely felt seen by that character. <laughs> well, wait, here's, here, here's, here are these fraudulent words that are said in various circumstances, but in everyone's life. It's better just to stay up. Now, I'm not saying that only happens when you're in a K-hole. I'm saying there's always the person who's like, you're going to get on, you have, oh, your flight's at seven? Better just to stay Can up. I tell you something? Yeah. It's not. That's what I wanted to tell our listeners too. It is never, ever better just to stay up. If it you're younger not. and you're listening to this podcast, we welcome you. I'm glad you found us on our, vi- like our vibrant TikTok uh, audience. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you something. If you're ever in the position where it's 3.30, mm-hmm. whatever, and you're just like, you know what? I'm just going to push through to the next mm-hmm. workday. Just don't. Just don't, don't do that. Many have walked that path before you. And it's just like, you just got to know when to say when. And as you, again, young, young listener, come, come sit by your two grandpas here by the fire and we'll, we'll give you some, some words of advice here. At a certain point, hopefully, and I say that with love, those words will not be said to you uh, in that way. They will not come up uh, at a bar or standing in front of a bar or within 100 yards of a bar. That won't be when those words are said. Those words will sound different when they are said in a professional context. And what the, the way those words will sound will be this. Why not just take the red eye? And let me tell you something, listener. That's also a trap. Yeah. You will not sleep and you will not be okay. Yeah. You will not push through. It will not be better. If, if, we, if, if you're too loving grandpas have any advice for you dude last time get, i took get, a red get, eye get some, i honestly felt sleep. like i was in requiem for a dream do, do you know the last time i took a red eye was this is i feel like i've never told the first half of the story i told people about the other part the last time i took a red eye was to go have lunch with tony gilroy in new york city oh yeah <laughs> i think people remember the time when he told me he was and i'll quote again not going to direct my fucking pilot <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It wasn't. Th- I wasn't there to ask him that, though. That just came up when he was offering me the second glass of just impossibly expensive vodka with the muddled mandarin orange in it. No, it was to have lunch with him to talk about another project. And you, fr- they say it's going to be fine. They tell you it'll be fine. In this case, I was even flown in the fancy part of the plane. But what they don't remind you is that the flight to New York is really like four hours and 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. And the next thing you know, it is a rainy... Wednesday on the Upper West Side. <laughs> and you're 64% and, ambient walking up. And, and you're just going into some like the kind of restaurant mm-hmm. that is the first restaurant that should be shut down anytime anybody coughs for the next 20 years. Yeah. And everyone there knows Tony and they're like offering him off menu specials. And you have to sort of sing and dance for your supper. So don't do it. Whether it's ketamine or it's acclaimed screenwriter Tony Gilroy, go to bed. Okay, you had another question about the show. I was gonna. I was curious how much of it you understood. Um, like when I, when that yeah. character when Harper says half a yard done. <laughs> what does that mean? Four cents. Like I, so, she is selling the idea that the treasury yield, the United States Treasury bond yields, over five years or whatever, are going to go up or down if we go into a war in the South China Sea and that woman who gropes her is like, bet, 250. 
but you what have to mean? pay. But there's like there seems to be an argument over the interest rates, right? Okay, I feel like you've you've re- you're really out in front of your skis here. Like I'm gonna I, get savaged by like the three finance bros who listen to this. Here's the thing: I actually asked a finance bro about some of this stuff. I checked in with what we, you did? we an anonymous finance bro, friend oh. of the pod, who wanted to just let me know. I asked a couple questions. There are some, I don't know whether this is the case in England, but there are some concerns about the realities of whether or not traders and bankers would be on the same floor because there's got to be a separation there between because bankers are essentially dealing with information that traders could then act on. My anonymous finance source did say that that's pretty much what going out is like. Okay. I was like, all right. And that people really do mercilessly make fun of what uh, the new people wear. So, but had no comment about the potential for war in the South China Sea. Didn't mention it. Here's my (laughs) follow-up comment. Uh As someone who's been to London several times over the last couple of years to see family. Right. I see these guys out. I see the finance bros out. Now, I, when I go to England, like right now, I'm a little self-conscious because like if and when I get the chance to go back to the East Coast, I feel like I've adopted a kind of like rustic West Coast look. Mm -hmm. Many people, you would would agree with that, right? Oh, 100%. And I don't know if that really translates to the streets of New York again. Like, I don't know what I used to look like in New York, but it wasn't this. You know what I mean? When I go to London, I feel like I am from, like, I, I'm literally like the frog lady trying to make my, my point while I'm holding my, my vase of eggs, you know? But when I see these finance Except bros... In this, in, in this case, just to keep the metaphor going, is your vase of eggs like a work shirt that's also a shacket that yes. is in a neutral olive color? yes. Okay, got it. But when you go to England and you see these guys standing outside in like 42 degrees and it's raining and they're wearing the world's tightest button-up. Like I cannot possibly explain how form-fitting these guys wear their Oxfords and they're just just destroying Marlboro lights outside talking about five beeps or or whatever. It's it's pretty accurate in that regard. Well, I mean... We lived in New York, and that that is the finance bro world in New no, York. No, there's a different and, level to it in England, though. They they just yeah. get they the shirts get so much tighter in England. Well, it's also it's everyone who in like everyone who is beating up the main characters in Withnell and I, but on a hundred times more cocaine, right? Like, yeah. it's that that's the culture. Which, all right, <laughs> respect, I guess. <laughs> um, couple couple yards on that. No, but I, to your point about understanding it. This is a credit to the screenwriters who, from what I understand, had a history. They worked in this field Experience, and they met. Yeah. And hopefully um, they'll come on the show and we can chat a little bit with, that, with them about oh, it. Oh, I'd love it. And I hope they could talk only in jargon, in very thick yes, accents. Only that would be in great. Beeps. Yeah. But, but that is the sign of a successful script that you know what this moment is for Harper. Um, 360 degrees, you understand it. Yeah. Even though you have no fucking idea what she's talking about. And. It's cool. It's also cool just to put a put a. Uh, this is this show. I've, I've really good feeling. This is going to be fun to talk about for the next six weeks or so. But um, if these characters live through the amount of ketamine that they're doing, yes, that's fine. I I, I have notes about their lives. If you'd <laughs> yeah. like to get into that, just that in keeping with some of the conversation we've had all summer, this is a TV show, meaning this has legs. This has really attractive, interesting, compelling young cast. Uh, and it could go, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be a miniseries. And I think that you and I both are particularly receptive to that kind of energy right now. I also want to say shout out to Harper for 
her present to herself after making her first huge sale, which I think yes. is basically a quarter billion dollar bet on the United States going to war with China with interest is to go and book herself a suite in a hotel and destroy a cheeseburger, which is yeah. on a lower level. Your boys, one of like my secret favorite things is to travel for work. Mm-hmm. You get in seven thirty, eight o'clock, whenever mm-hmm. drop your bag off, immediately go down to the bar and have a cheeseburger fries and three beers. Yeah. Oh, the there there's a certain class of, of food which is really this is after you have not taken the red eye. I just want yes, to run, circle right. back this to that. This is the 11 a.m. and you get in whenever, yeah. You've arrived at a reasonable time, but there is a type of food that only really tastes good in or tastes best, let's say, in hotels, club sandwiches, cheeseburgers, french fries. I, I, of all I learned kinds. this from David Jacoby. Yes. A cold a, a cold mini bar Heineken. I'm not that's not just shilling because they've advertised on us. Like that is a classic classic uh work expense let's say <laughs> uh anything else you wanted to hit today i think i'm gonna hit this tuesday night club i've, I've heard it's a very chill scene <laughs> and they have a very lax by the way a lot of act you know i i one last thing to say about the show my one concern i only have one concern now that the resistance is over and as i said earlier we won we all need to be taking this virus very seriously and I hope all of our listeners continue to, but I, I, I don't, I hope that at the end of it, when we emerge healthy again and, you know, wiser about things that we are not fully back in, we are not all suddenly Julian Moore and safe in terms of like right. double scrubbing and pouring bleach on ourselves and everything. And I hope that people in that moment, as we emerge blinking out into the new reality, maybe we'll rewatch industry uh, episode one, because its vision of what bathrooms can be for is expansive, <laughs> liberal, and profoundly optimistic. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You don't have to worry about me, man. I, Pfizer can pump that right into my jugular. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, let's go. I'm ready to take 86 Ubers in one night. There was, there was a, I know you have a, you have a push alert for when the Russian baths <laughs> open again in Manhattan. You're like, it's Schmidt season, baby. Me and Vigo. <laughs> yeah. and David Jacoby. That sounds like a good, that sounds like a good little Tuesday. All, All right. right, man. Uh, so Monday, we're going to have a stacked show. We have a special guest coming on on Monday. Uh, we'll make sure that that happens tomorrow before we get too excited about it. But special guest on Monday. And I'm also going to begin uh, my three episode run of conversations with Amanda Dobbins about the crown. So we'll be doing episodes one through three. Guys, the crown season is Incredible. I cannot wait for people to watch it. So are you saying that Monday will feature both the Mandalorian and a Mandalorian? I don't think Amanda loves that nickname. Candidly. No? No. Have you said that before? I thought <laughs> I just came up with that live on air. I did. And whatever her reaction was, I got the impression that that should be the last time I try it. Fair. She's not a big franchise person. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's not really her bag. Um, no. Okay. So yeah, so Amanda will come on. Andy and I will be talking about, I'm sure Mandalorian, I'm sure Undoing and some other stuff, maybe even Industry Episode 2. Uh, so we have plenty of stuff to talk about uh, Monday and Thursday show. Stick with us and we'll talk to you soon. Drop the clean memes. 